0: podcast ain't play nobody part of the banner society network i am your host richard johnson as the old man remains on paternity leave he is speaking to uh me i guess and to all of you from the grave primarily because he was texting me all throughout yesterday about colorado's coaching search mom and baby are home godfrey is not sleeping so in his stead I have brought in and decided to bring in a cast of characters. I'm throwing a party because Dad's not here. The first person that I am bringing in is Nate Scott, my former boss, his former boss, uh, currently at USA Today and currently uh, rolling out a little podcast series that we're going to talk about called The Sneak. Nate, what's happening? How are we doing? Where uh, where can the people find you just off the bat on the old interwebs?
1: Uh, I'm on Twitter at A. Nate Scott, not The Nate Scott, a nate scott which was a dumb joke 10 years ago and i'm just stuck with it and uh yeah twitter
0: facebook usa today find me Uh, Nate Scott does have PAPN credentials as a former Tulane soccer legend. uh, The Messi of Metairie is here with us today. Nate, let's talk about the sneak real quick. Let's do the uh, the boring journalist uh, press junket thing about your very, very good True Crime podcast. Uh, You did a True Crime podcast about a University of Idaho football player. Um, I, I guess the floor is open for you to just go explain as much or as little of it as you care to. You know, we've always we've obviously got a tease so that the people will listen for themselves.
1: Yeah, uh sure. We did it we did a true crime podcast. It's serialized, it's one story on a former University of Idaho football player who played under Tom Cable there. And he uh then hurt his knee, got prescribed opioids, uh Tried to remake himself as a real estate agent after school, and then the housing market collapsed. So he decided to rob a Brinks truck, as one uh, does, as one does. Made off with four hundred thousand dollars and escaped in an inner tube down a river. Uh, so it was a story that we were drawn to just because of, uh, I guess, a confluence of all those things. You know, uh, opioids and the housing market collapse. It just, it just felt like a very natural story for us to kind of go after uh and then over the course of reporting we ended up finding out that this story that we thought we were going to set out to report wasn't actually the real story at all so that's kind of the the elevator pitch that you've made me give
0: <laughs> so i i guess you get halfway in and this is like you guys are not the first people to tell this story i mean this was on 2020 this was in esquire all this kind of stuff so you get in thinking this story is going to be this you think it's going to be X, and then it ends up being Y. Um, how, I guess, take us back to the beginning of, like, how this even got pitched to you, how you guys found it, and and how you started kind of on the track, like, reporting it and all that kind of stuff.
1: Yeah, I mean, we knew we wanted to do a true crime podcast. Uh, we knew we wanted to – people like those. We thought it would be fun to kind of look at it through the lens of sports. And uh, I'll be honest, uh, I Spencer Hall did It Seemed Smart over at, at SB Nation – and I thought it was wonderful, but I also thought that he just didn't have enough time with these with these stories and with these characters, and that, that was something that sorry Spencer I looked at and kind of built off of and basically <laughs> said, "Hey man, like you know for me, the what makes true crime fun? It's mystery, it's it's playing with expectations, it's cliffhangers. it's that kind of rapid synaptic understanding when when you know those synapse fire and you understand like, oh, you know that like for me, that's the fun of true crime." And so for us, we just thought we could tell the story in a really fun way and also maybe dive in deeper on some uh, kind of the bigger themes of it. And, you know, we thought of it more as like, we'll look at the opioid crisis through this story. Um, That's not what ended up happening. What actually ended up happening was we found out that uh, for a lot of reasons, uh, the story had changed and morphed because of the criminal and because of media and because and so for us it, it really just became kind of a curiosity thing like all right let's just figure out what actually happened here and more importantly like who was involved
0: yeah i am i am six episodes in. currently um you have what three more to roll out uh on the feed mm-hmm. exactly podcast is called the sneak um it is it's pretty good uh i i think when we talk about anthony curcio who is the 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 uh, main character here spoiler um, alert it, yeah spoiler alert. i'm just I'm just kidding, uh, kidding. Yeah. <laughs> um i I think I don't know if this became cutting room floor stuff but like how does he think of and talk about his football career in general uh you know he's so he's such an interesting
1: dude for him, football has you know he he basically has this one kind of big moment in his life and so for him, everything else becomes kind of a prism to either talk about uh, what led him there. You know, he he kind of has this one big chapter in the novel of his life, and so everything else is kind of a preamble to that. So when he was talking about his football career, and I don't know if, if he did this intentionally or if it's just a subconscious thing, it's all leading up, you know, he was kind of an undersized wide receiver, punt return man, but for him it was all about like, I wanted to plan out my routes better than everyone else, and I wanted to anticipate everything. And then I was able, and talk, when he's talking about it, you're like, he's talking about robbing the Brink Street. Yeah, right you yeah. <laughs> like <laughs> he's literally, like, even if he doesn't mean to be doing it. And so, or else he's just, you know, providing me as a writer, like the most ample stuff to, to work with. But that was something what he talked about a lot was just kind of this uh, a drive to, to go over the middle and, and do things that no one else wanted to do. And how once he saw something, he had to commit to it, which I thought was interesting in the perspective of uh, committing a crime. But then also this idea of trying to outsmart those who were trying to catch him, in this case, the DB. Uh, and and he kind of talked about that at length. So I don't know. It was... Uh, you know, he pitches himself as kind of a Wes Welker type. Who knows how <laughs> how good he actually was? But that's sort of how he how he pitched himself. His
0: uh, his dad is a former Idaho letterman. I found him in an Idaho uh, media guide. I did not find any kind of mention of Anthony. You know, he doesn't he doesn't have like a record or anything like that. Yeah, you know. well,
1: he was uh he was suspended. For, uh, he played under Paul Skansky, a former Seahawks wide receiver. His freshman year uh, was suspended for underage drinking before the first game and then in preseason with Tom Cable in second game he second year he he tore his knee so that was that was it kibby dome took out his knee that'll get you
0: kibby dome shout out um i do the one thing that i guess i will kind of ask you to like really tell in kind of the way you told it on the podcast was this story about like why he became a wide receiver like he tells this anecdote and you tell this anecdote really well about this like foundational like slight that he had like as a kid yeah, I
1: mean it's sort of a—you never know with Anthony. You know, i, I spent so much time. Oh, with we're this gonna get—we're gonna get
0: there. We're gonna yeah. get there.
1: <laughs> uh And for him, he—he he tells the story of how when he was in fifth grade, he wanted to be a wide receiver. His dad was a wide receiver. His dad was kind of a local legend, local high school football legend, and then went to Idaho, played, and you know, and, and Anthony wanted to follow in his dad's footsteps, and and the coach basically made him be a blocker and then at the end of the year he he wins the coach's award instead of winning you know best receiver and the coach made a crack like you know anthony always a good kid tried hard but he you know this kid could not catch which for the coach and probably everyone there was a little you know toss aside comment that they didn't think twice about uh curcio harbored that and can tell the story like we in the in the podcast it's about a minute and a half long in real life, that was like a 25 minute story Jeez. that he that he told, like in great detail about like who was laughing where and what you know, and and that's clearly something that that kind of stuck with him. But but he's still like that, you know. He's still a guy who uh, takes slights very seriously. So uh, watch out in the comment box because I mean he's probably going to listen to this. Hey Anthony, <laughs> uh, and if you comment something, he'll probably read it. So.
0: Um, So I I guess this robbery was 12 years ago. We're 12 years on from the actual robbery. Yes. Yes. Um, So he has told this story, these stories, umpteen times. I mean, you know, it's old hat for him. And, you know, you guys even get at that at one point in time. But like how much how much of this for you is sifting through just like kind of nerdy journalistically, like through this guy's own myth-making as you are trying to tell a true accurate story before you even realize that the story is, is different from what you set out to tell.
1: Well, yeah, I mean that, that was what was so interesting with, for, for me and with Anthony is that, so he has his version of the story, which if you ask him to tell it quickly, he'll kind of tell this version of the story cause he's rehearsed it and he's done it. He has his elevator pitch. Uh, but then I was there for a week and then we would kind of be pushing him on other parts of the story. And then he wasn't exactly hiding it. He would just be like, "Oh, did I not, like a little bit of a spoiler? I mean, you'll figure this out." But he's like, "Oh, did I not tell you guys there was a getaway driver?" And we're like, "Oh. No, you didn't. There was a there was a getaway <laughs> driver. Okay. Uh who was that?" Oh, it was this guy. And he didn't tell us his name, but like we we were able to then discern that um and that be kind of came the 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 quest of the podcast was you know, understanding, you know, how much role did the media play in it? How much role did uh, Anthony play it? And and you'll hear in the last three episodes coming up, you know, that's something that we really set out, even going out to find one of the the people involved back then and basically trying to understand, you know, how how this story, which was amazing on its own and, and didn't need to kind of be, curtailed but for us it was you know this is one of the first stories that kind of went viral and in, in, you know those late aughts days of kind of social virality that this is one of those first stories that did that and so for us it was about tracing like all right how did all these other characters just get excised from the story how did this become the myth and how complacent was he in it and you know for us it he, you know there were times where he was really testy and there were times where we kind of got at stuff that he really didn't want to go into and uh i will say anthony was very smart in waiting usually until the microphones were off until kind of confronting me and um we had i don't know i mean i probably talked to Kersey on the phone more than my wife over the last year and a half so um <laughs>
0: Stephen godfrey can a- relate
1: yes exactly Uh, Well, I think I think Curcio is now past Godfrey as the person I'm on the phone with the most. So
0: at at some point, do you just say every day or every interaction or every conversation you have, you go into it thinking like, I'm probably interviewing someone who is lying to me.
1: Not to get all like journalist wonky, but like, I think that's true of every interview I've ever done. It's like, you know, this guy's probably lying to me or at least not giving me anything of note. Um, and so for me, interviewing anyone, it's always just about like, am I going to get enough time? And am I going to be well prepared enough to kind of pick at it? And or, you know, listen well and ask the follow up question. I mean, I will say with Anthony, we spent a week out there and, and these were like 12 hour days with him or, you know, 8 to 12 hour days with this and and filming and, we, we thought at the time we might be doing a documentary, so we had a camera crew and we were getting B-roll with him and, and doing the whole thing. And I will say that it's it was just uh, exhausting uh, just to be on that, that long. And he's got a lot of energy um, and he can kind of bring it. And so I think for both of us, by the end, we were both just kind of mentally, emotionally, physically exhausted just from kind of having to be on constantly is this person lying to me is he telling me the whole truth is this you know does this work for our narrative is he giving us what we need to kind of tell this story right and you know for him it's are these guys going to take advantage of me and screw me over like so many other people have so yeah I don't know if that answered your question but
0: no it does I like Anthony is very interesting to me because I think Every every athlete's next act after athletics is something that is just very interesting to me personally. Like, I, college football is something that I think I personally, even myself, kind of struggle with, like, college football is what I do. College football is also what I'm passionate about. Um, and so that kind of duality affects like my own identity and kind of how I think about myself and all that kind of stuff. Do I wrap myself in this passion and this job and all that kind of stuff? But Anthony is interesting. And people like Anthony are interesting because they have this second act that is like profoundly impactful to their sense of self and the story that they tell about themselves. And it, it has nothing to do with the sport, but also the way he talks about his first act in life is like through the lens of, you know the robbery and all that kind of stuff
1: yeah i mean he's 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 an interesting dude that's a very boring thing to say but like for me i think that's something all athletes kind of struggle with is is that is that transition and for him he clearly has always been kind of looking for that team and that was why i thought it was so interesting for us that all these other people who were involved got kind of removed from the story and there were legal reasons from it and all this other stuff. But I mean, this was really, you know, he didn't need the other people. And he says it himself in the podcast, like I didn't need these other people. He just sort of had this instinct to kind of recruit them who honestly didn't even really, some of them really didn't even understand what was going on. Um, But, but I do think that there was kind of that uh, need for team that drive, but then also this weird kind of longing for, fame and attention and uh you know late in the podcast someone i I won't reveal who kind of floats this idea that the reason his plan was so ornate because the plan didn't make sense like if you go to the site and we toured the, the robbery site with him um there is no reason for him to get run across two highways <laughs> where he could have just gotten in a car and be gone to get into a river and then pull himself down a tube. And, and he originally had a jet ski that he had trenched the river Classic. to get a jet ski in there. and But the, the, the person who we talked to floated the idea that the reason that the plan was so ornate was that were he ever to be caught, he knew he could then get famous off of the off of the crime, which was like a really wild, like oh my god moment, where I was like, did I just fall into this guy's hands <laughs> and do what he's been planning? You know, the, the, am I the backup plan right now by making this podcast? But anyway, this is a lot of talk for a podcast that n- no one's listened to. So, well, thank you I for- you
0: have an audience of at least one.
1: Oh, I appreciate that. Thank it's you, good.
0: Um, all right, that's enough of the press junket. Yeah,
1: let's talk about other stuff. Uh,
0: oh, we are gonna. Um, okay, so you, Nate, I think for you personally. You, how people fall into college football fandom or interest, I think is very interesting to me. I personally grew up in it, I don't know anything else. Um, yep. you know, Godfrey for Godfrey's, uh, you know, Godfrey kind of in college, I guess, kind of fell into it. Obviously, grew up a Georgia Southern fan, but then goes to an SEC school and it's Ole Miss and all that kind of stuff. And he can tell you about that till he's blue in the face. Um, you went to a party school that was bad when you were there. Um, And then you start kind of learning about the sport, like through the eyes of the people that would end up becoming the Banner Society, which I think is very interesting to me.
1: Yeah. I mean, so I don't know why any listeners would know this, but I was Godfrey's editor on Crooked Letters, um, which was then kind of simultaneously turned into the documentary foul play
0: project x foul play yes
1: project x foul play uh so i was got i was the uh unseen really just therapist for godfrey during that whole thing that was that was really what all i was doing um and so yeah like i i kind of got this hilarious crash course in college football where i'm spending nine months with godfrey and we'd have moments where you know pages deep in affidavits and I'm here yelling at him that he needs to write more we need to get sourcing or the structures off on this story or how do we factor in the documentary and then Godfrey would be like all right I need to go to the egg bowl next week and I'd be like what's the egg bowl you know (laughs) and I think I'm in in the middle of filming a documentary about so yeah it was kind of a uh, fly before you can crawl type type deal there but I hopefully we got away with it I don't know
0: I don't want to do like a what did you learn throughout foul play thing not that simple but like what do you take away about the sport after you obviously watched it and then you know watched it on tv whatever and then you live through it in the way that you live through it from foul play like what do you take away from college football like as a sport after kind of living through that uh
1: you know, my background's in soccer, and I followed international soccer for so long that I think, in, in, in a weird way, it kind of prepared me for college football. Yes, because like,
0: you know how absurd it is.
1: <laughs> yeah, a how absurd it is, but b just kind of, uh, it is in a in a dark way, just a a total free market economy in yeah. a way, and kind of a um, it, you know, the way teams were operating, it wasn't super hard, and and my first job out of you know, in journalism was I was a crime reporter in in northeastern Massachusetts and so for me it, it was just like kind of going back to that. It was like, all right, yep, Godfrey, like let's get this guy and then we roll him up to the next guy you know like yeah. it was like it was just kind of like a classic investigation. So for me, it was sort of uh stuff I had heard kind of whispers about I think it was really interesting for me uh seeing it kind of laid bare and and also, how sort of brazen, uh, it was. And, and that was, I think the hardest part for me to understand and something Godfrey and, you know, Floyd, you Spencer had to kind of walk me through was, was understanding why, uh, upstanding, upstanding members of these communities who have so much to lose, uh, are getting involved (laughs) in like stupidly small amounts of dollars being handed off to 18 year old kids. And that was a part for me that was sort of like, even that was the part I, I kind of struggled with. Um, But even, I guess, I don't know. I, I, it's hard for me to watch. I mean, I enjoy the games now. I've learned a lot. I listen to you guys every week. I mean, for me, it's been interesting to get into it, but also uh, tough to kind of, uh, I guess, watch it without, I just had such a perverse, weird kind of introduction to the sport, I guess.
0: Yeah. I, I think that it's it's funny people who drop in, you know, later in life and, and don't grow up in it and don't kinda of, there are things that I take for granted. Like you talk about the egg bowl. Like I take for granted the egg bowl. When I say the egg bowl, uh majority of the people listening to this podcast know what it is they they intuitively know what the egg bowl means they know leo lewis they know dk metcalf they you know they know a player pantomiming peeing on the field they know the trophy they know all the things that go into it but you know when you really boil it down and when we sort of explain when we try to kind of spoon feed to you some of the absurdities in the game it, it became hilarious to me it's one of those things where you sit and you think man, I've literally wrapped myself up into the most absurd spectacle in this country uh, from a sporting perspective, I guess. Yeah,
1: and, you know, I I had I went to school at Tulane. I coached soccer briefly after college in, in Destrehan, Louisiana, and I would coach teams there, and every dad on the team, it, you know, most times you coach soccer, every every dad wants their kid to be the forward so they can score the goals. Uh, that team, everyone wanted their kid to be the goalie so that he could one day play wide receiver for LSU. Absolutely. He, the, s- soccer was just hands work for these guys like <laughs> or maybe like, you know, like sp- sp- sprints occasionally. So I, I sort of understood and, you know, we'd play games on Saturdays and two parents would have to drive all 18 kids to the field because no one's coming to our game if we're playing on Saturday. So I sort of understood the cultural phenomenon. Um, but for me, you know, I, I definitely had to play catch up and, I, and I'll admit coming in as You know the editor on on a project like that because I I really did get thrown in the deep end. I I was a little hesitant and cautious, and I'll give Godfrey credit that he, you know, I was sort of saying, you know, I'm not an expert in this. I, you know, I don't know this, and Godfrey was the one who was like, "It's just, it's just people acting out of self interest, man. We got to just figure out who is connected to who." And then it was like, "All right, then I know how to do. You know, I know how to do this. I know how to do an investigation." So. He would might have to fill me in on, you know, conference alignments and other <laughs> stuff like that. But I was able to to kind of hack it out, you know, yeah. at that point.
0: Um, okay, I, you went to Tulane. You lived for a long time in uh, New Orleans. You made it out alive, thank goodness. Um, give me like the best Tulane story that you have.
1: Ooh, uh, what rating can we go with here? Oh,
0: wait, oh, give it to me, give it to me.
1: Um, man, my best two lane story was I was, uh, so my first day was, was hurricane Katrina. I don't know if you knew that. <laughs> I well, did I, not I, know that. Yeah. So I evacuated on Friday, storm hit Sunday. Uh, I went Holy up to Dartmouth. Shit. Yeah. 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 <laughs> went up to Dartmouth. Uh, Played soccer was declared an illegal transfer by the NCAA, uh, so I never actually got to play for Dartmouth, which prepared me to go after the NCAA with you guys because I was, I harbored some, a personal vendetta. I guess I should admit <laughs> that as a journalist, but anyway, uh, went, then came back, and and that summer Tulane did a, uh, a, semester called LANYAP in the summer, which was basically just a chance for kids who didn't get the right classes or credits to to get caught up a little bit. But every class was pass fail, I believe. And you could only take one or two classes because they just didn't have the staffing for it. So what it ended up turning into is just a three-month bender for the students who came back. And you also have to remember, this is kind of post-apocalyptic New Orleans where you know we had the National Guard on campus because there, there was no real active police Jesus. presence in the city. Uh, yeah. I mean, when I came you know, New Orleans pre-storm was like 600,000 people. When I went back to school, I think there was like 28,000 people living in New Orleans Oof. at that time. And so uh, it was, you know, it was just like end of the world. You know, we just, it was a bunch of kids partying, you know, you'd go out and I'd be drinking on a tank with an 18 year old national guard kid sitting outside the boot bar. Um, and that was our summer. We just had like 3 months when you know we'd sneak the drinks to the to the National Guard who were who are still there and police would come occasionally and that was kind of a I won't go into too much more details cuz I don't want to incriminate me or anyone else but
0: No, that's pretty good. That is uh that is a good that's as good a use for the National Guard as I can think of. Um, so okay, you you transfer. I mean, you tried to transfer, you tried to go through um, proper channels, the NCAA, and go play somewhere else. Uh, take me through that process as a transfer in the non-transfer portal era.
1: There, I mean, it was it was it was bananas. There was no rhyme or reason. So cause it was post Katrina. So basically every college that would have you, you could just kind of go. Uh, I had been lightly recruited by Dartmouth to play. Uh I you know, I was <laughs> the soccer equivalent. I was probably a 2-star and they you know, they were looking more at 4 and you know, 3 and 4 stars, but uh you know, the coach basically said come up here. And what was weird was that Tulane did not have a soccer team at that point. We it was like a club team. I had just decided got an academic scholarship was done with soccer, saying goodbye. So
0: didn't like you're talking about after high school. Didn't want to Keep playing. Yeah,
1: I was done. You know, I, I basically wanted to get out of New England. Uh, went to Tulane. Was just going to play club soccer and have a good time. And then Dartmouth called, and I was like, "Well, I guess I get a chance to to do this thing." But that was what was so frustrating for me was I got up there, get training, and then you know before I head off to my first game, compliance or the school's compliance officer basically said you've been deemed. An illegal transfer. We are not letting you, they're not going to let you play. And uh, for me, it was like, well, they're like, we, they don't want people leaving the Tulane teams because they put in this rule in effect. Basically, they didn't want LSU coming in and s- scooping all the Tulane recruits after Katrina. Football-wise, you're talking it, about. Football-wise. Yeah. And so they just did a blanket ban on any Tulane athletes playing for other schools. You're
0: telling me the NCAA put a blanket rule that wasn't terribly thought out and it had <laughs> adverse effects. And unintended consequences.
1: There you go. That's exactly right. So I was deemed an illegal transfer. Uh, We appealed. I was denied every week of the year. Uh, Last week of the season, Dartmouth versus Harvard, we were like number 16 in the nation at the time. We were really good. Uh, I just assumed same thing would happen. I was down at Harvard, went out hard with a couple buddies uh, who went to B.C., and Saturday morning, the NCAA cleared me to play, and I <laughs> sh- showed up. I showed up at the locker of and the room, and the coach saw my eyes and said, you're going to play with the JV team today. <laughs> so, I, so I went over to, and went and played with the, with the JV guys. So I, I, I blew my one shot, and then a week later, they reopened Tulane, and I said, "I'm out of here." So I went
0: back. One shot at glory gone. Uh, <laughs> that actually is really good. Um, I your waiver process was it just pencil pushing, writing a waiver? Like when we talk about transfer waivers on this show, we are talking about usually players like getting lawyers and getting yeah. advocates for them uh, to go at their behalf in front of the NCAA and all that kind of stuff, transfers in in 2020 are markedly different than they were in 2007, obviously.
1: Um,
0: And then obviously we're taking that down from, you know, not a revenue sport to a non-revenue sport.
1: Yeah, no, uh, this all happened out of my – I had no idea. You know, the coach basically said we can try and get more people involved if you want, but, you know, I was going to be the – I was going to get five minutes a game. If anything, you know, I was, I was a back of the bench guy. And I think if I had committed to staying there for four years, maybe they would have tried to commit anything, you know, something for me. But at that point, I think for the head coach, I wasn't worth the paperwork and the, and the, you know, the pain of trying to make that, that transfer reality. So for him, it was just sort of like, yeah, someone to help fill out the practice squad. And, and you know, that was, that was basically it.
0: Okay. I, that was good. See, I didn't I had no idea about that transfer stuff. Um, That, I think, is really interesting. Um, Okay, so now I'm going to talk about something you're extremely well-versed in. Um, The people came here, I hope, for Colorado Head Coaching News. So let's talk about Colorado Head Coaching News. Uh, Nate Scott, you will be playing the role of Stephen Godfrey as we go through um, some talk about the Colorado Head Coaching Search. As it stands, it is 315 Eastern on February 13th. We're going to get to therapy words in a second. But if you are coming up to speed here, Mel Tucker... uh, earlier this weekend basically put out a tweet after Michigan State sent out feelers and interviewed him and said, I'm not going anywhere. I'm staying at Colorado, et cetera, et cetera. Michigan State to water and, and couldn't find a head coach. Luke Fickle told him no. A few other people told him no. Uh, Michigan State goes back to Mel Tucker with the bag. 5.5 million thereabouts, plus like 6 million for staff, um, which for a staff pool... Uh, at the highest levels of Power 5, which Michigan State aspires to be and being in the Big Ten, at least they're in the neighborhood. $6 is a lot of money for staff. Um, And so, yeah, Mel Tucker is now the head coach at Michigan State. And in his wake um, is a Colorado head coaching search that I think is very intriguing. I think it's going to be a little... um, I'm trying to find the right words for this. I think Colorado's about to figure out exactly their place in the world um, when you look for a head coach in mid February at a middling at best Pac 12 school. Um, But so on the field, Colorado, uh, they've joined since joining the Pac 12 in 2011. They've won more than three conference games one time. They've been to a bowl once since 2008. But what Colorado, when we talk about Colorado in context, I think Colorado has one of two ways they can go. Mel Tucker built this to be a defensive changeup on the schedule. Something of uh, similar to Stanford in the sense of we are going to play a certain brand of ball that is different from Washington State and what USC is doing air raid style, which I think I can kind of level with you, Nate, in talking about like an international soccer when you see Manchester United and Man City and, um, you know, name Liverpool at the top of the league when they go and they try to play like Burnley. Or like a truly brick shit house Mourinho team, like that's what I think Colorado should try to do, and and can possibly try to do. And I'm trying to speak your language here.
1: No, I appreciate that. I I, I truly do. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm with but, you now. Say again. I'm with you now. Exactly. But no wait. I'm wait. I'm being Godfrey. Yeah, Sorry. Yeah. I'm being Godfrey. Don't. No, you're not talking to Nate right now. You're talking to Godfrey. I'm talking
0: to Godfrey. Um. So okay. So what if I will? If you were Godfrey, what would Godfrey say right now? All right. I think first we should
1: go over what we know, what we think we know, what we suppose, what we feel. Yes. Uh, what we hanker for and what we long for.
0: Yes. Okay. Uh, so what do we know? What do we know? We know right now, as I've, as I've said, what, what Colorado is on the field, off the field. Um, it. Let's talk about the money here. Colorado is a Pac-12 school. Um, we know the Pac-12 from a money sense is not competing with the other conferences in Power 5, mainly the SEC SEC and the Big Ten, because of what I said about what Michigan State came in and offered Mel Tucker, an offer he couldn't refuse. Um, Right now, I know that the salary for a head coach at Colorado is going to roughly be in the $3 million range at top, um, and they're going to have about another $3 million uh, for a salary pool. That is not top line really competitive in a money sense it's not um and i think colorado is going to have to reckon with that i think that is going to make colorado's search focus on defensive assistant coaches given what we talked about them being a change up on the schedule and uh the money that they can offer and also the timing it's mid-february and it's you fire a coach after both signing days you know it and you're butting up against spring practice with some of the potential head coaches that you maybe want to interview here. Um, and we'll get to the names here in a second. Um, I think and I know that this search is going to be pretty deliberate and it's going to be pretty intentional. Um, I don't think they have to or will really rush this. Um, as far as I knew, Tuesday night, February 12th, they hadn't really scheduled interviews. They had put some feelers out, but had no interviews yet until later this weekend. Um, they they have to get their ducks in a row because you get caught a little flat-footed when Tucker leaves, but also they can take the time to get their ducks in a row. Um, they will probably go search for him for this Uh, and they will look to finalize. That'll probably be finalized by the time you hear this. Uh, By the time you hear this, it will be Friday. Um, So let's talk about names to keep in mind. Ryan Walters was a captain at Colorado uh, when he was a player. He's Missouri's defensive coordinator. Um, That would make Colorado, uh, one of the schools that has gone back-to-back blackhead coaches, Um, that's something not a lot of schools do. Uh, USF has done it. ECU has done it. Um, Those are uh, just two schools that pop to mind. As having done that lately, um, Darren Shaverini is the interim head coach uh, right now. He's a West Coast guy and and has a lot of ties there. He would kind of keep recruiting um, humming, I guess, in the way that it has been. And and like I said, he is the interim. Um, other names to think about and keep in mind: Alex Grinch, Andy Avalos, Graham Harrell. Um, also keep in mind basically anybody who's not in the American Athletic Conference and is a good to decent G5 coach. Um we're talking, you know, the Jim Mac of the world. Um could Brian Harson's head be turned? We'll see. Um Harson you know, for Harson to take a job that is lateral and that's the most optimistic way I can describe the job from moving from Boise State to Colorado. It's probably a step down in actuality. Um for Harson to take that, um It'd take some money. It'd take some institutional backing. Um, does Colorado have it? Well, we're going to find out. Um, okay. That's what the people came to hear. Uh, that is that is my update and my think, my know, my feel was, on the Colorado head coaching search.
1: That was really good. I had a bunch of other Godfrey bits that I was prepared to, to spill out. No, but, no. What you got?
0: No, I don't
1: – I mean – I, I was going to say, you know, I'm not even sure what this job is yet. I mean, what even is it? Um, <laughs> I was going to talk about how I talked to a coordinator at a P5 school about this job. <laughs> but, I went, but I wouldn't name the coordinator. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Can't do that. Uh, what are we talking about when we talk about Colorado? That was a question I was going to ask you. Um, anyway... Uh, I was going to ask you if we thought it was a sea change. I don't really know what that means, but <laughs> Godfrey God, seems to say that a lot. So, I had a lot of I had a bunch of them, but that's okay. We we can we can do those some other time. Uh,
0: was, I like that. Uh, was, is Colorado a sea change actually is a good jumping off point because so Colorado is in the Pac-12 South. Colorado is in a Pac-12 South that Colorado's funny to me because the current landscape of the Pac-12 South makes me think, and I know, Nate, you've talked about this at length, Colorado is in a Pac-12 South that is on its face winnable for a school like Colorado. And when I say that, I mean both LA schools suck, um, and one of the Arizona schools is rudderless and trying to figure it out. That gives the rest of this league, or the rest of that division, I should say, a bit carte blanche to to move, there's some mobility there. Um, Utah right now is the dominant team. We will see how long that lasts. Um, but if I if I just gave you uh, Nate Godfrey, if I just gave you that kind of roadmap and said, "Hey, this is what the Pac-12 South is," one would think that Colorado could and should compete at least for now at the higher levels of that division. Now that is absent of. Colorado's own team talent level and skill level and 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 recent history since joining the league like we talked about um but right now stepping into Colorado whoever steps into Colorado is stepping into a, a situation that everything around Colorado may lead you to believe that there's an amount of upward mobility to be had um but Colorado where they go next I think will be very interesting because the way Mel Tucker was taking that team and trying to make it that change up and that that you know pitfall on the schedule for air raid teams or whatever, if you hire a defensive coach, you can kind of keep going that way. But if you hire a Graham Harrell, if you hire a Graham Harrell, it's going to take a recalibration of that roster that is going to be painful because that team going in a deep – first of all, when you bring the air raid on, it's not add water instant offense – like a lot of people in Starkville, Mississippi, I think may be about to figure out. You add that to the fact that Colorado was not exactly moving in an offensive, uh, in, in a future, futuristic offensive um, way. And so you've got kind of two competing things if you bring in a coach like Graham Harrell who's going to install an air raid style offense or a high flying style offense. Um, Colorado is interesting, uh, I, but it is not the Colorado. Nate, that you may recognize for from when you were in college. It's it's not that Colorado um, or in high school. You know, it, it's not the team that is going to go toe to toe with you know a good Nebraska team on Thanksgiving weekend, um, primarily because they're not in the Big Twelve anymore. But you know, they're not that team. They're not that team that is um, you know coming off of being pretty close to you know a BCS. Uh, birth and all that kind of stuff it, it's just not that team it's just not that program um and so where,
1: where do they where do they recruit
0: from cali yeah a little bit of that um there's gonna be a little bit of that they are for as a as a program they're going to have to go there they're going to have to go to texas to arizona um and get those guys uh colorado in-state talent in colorado is not bad um you can you can make some hay with in-state talent in colorado um, also, obviously, you kind of have to go through the Polynesian pipeline a little bit, uh, sure. which means you are going to have to have a recruiting staff that is very much in touch with that community. Um, you know, that, that is not a community where players just go. Um you have to ha you have to build trust in that community uh and, and you have to show kind of a-, a little bit of proof of concept into taking those athletes, taking those players, um, treating them the right way and 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 making a program that is welcoming for them and their families and and that sort of stuff. The 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 whole excuse me, the whole like I'm out west, I'm just gonna recruit a bunch of Polynesian linemen, like it's not that easy. It's not as easy mm-hmm. as-, as you'd think.
1: I've learned so much
0: what uh what 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 else are your your colorado questions du jour do you have any is there anything else i can i can enlighten you at uh enlighten you to as to the colorado job
1: i think you got into it at the beginning but you know i'm always curious what the uh it, it's i mean you you went you went over this i'm i'm curious what the temperature is you know that's a question you guys like asking. who
0: wants who wants this job if I but like I say all all of the last ten minutes I've been talking like I say all of that and I still come back to if I was a defensive assistant coach like I'm a defensive coordinator I'm taking this job like yeah. I it's a Pac-12 job like let's not be ridiculous yeah, yeah, yeah. here for those kinds of guys of course I'm taking this job of course yeah. I'm gonna say in my head hey I can get this to eight and four given the parameters of the division like we just talked about um I can get this to eight and four and then I can skirt somewhere else um. Yeah. Sorry, Colorado fans. Sorry. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I think of it like that. Um, if I am a head coach, though, if I am a head coach, what type of head coach am I to take this Colorado job is is the most important thing when we talk about potential head coaches who may take this job, sitting head coaches who may take this job. Like I said, am I a non-American athletic conference, uh, probably non-Boise State um head coach of a good G5 team. All right, let's talk. Um yeah. but
1: so they're not taking Willie Fritz away from me is what you're telling me. Uh I do not think
0: they are going to be able to take Willie Fritz okay. away from you. Um what are your your Willie Fritz opinions? Is is he the savior? Is he the one who was promised for for two-lane football? Uh
1: yeah. I I, I love Willie. I think Will Hall is also someone to get really excited about and i think is going to be the one who we end up losing first yeah like i think this was kind of fritz's time and now i think like i don't know unless he goes and wins a a ton of games next year if he wins nine games next year with tulane then he'll go wherever he wants but if that doesn't happen i think we'll lose will hall before we'll lose fritz
0: yeah um I I think that is really interesting. Like, okay, we're done with Colorado. I want to talk about Tulane. Sorry, Colorado. No, I want to talk about Tulane. You have seen Tulane football in – you've seen Tulane football, I think, go from this low point, not as far as, like, on the field I'm talking about. Tulane's been much worse. But, like, in a sense of, like, culturally, you know, the city that they are in, all that kind of stuff, you have seen Tulane very closely over the last basically 15 years – Mm-hmm. Um, I guess what is Tulane football for you as an alum? Um, you know, who's far away and is just like a lot of us who are far away from our alma maters and just want a good football team to connect us home.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think the stadium on campus did more than I think people will, uh, realize for kind of making that team feel like a part of, the Uptown New Orleans community. Ex- explain, uh,
0: for, for those of us who don't know, kind of explain what we talk, because I joked about Metairie in the beginning of the podcast. Yes. Explain kind of New Orleans for those who don't know, um, and our contingent of LSU fans uh, and followers who listen to this podcast, I don't know, just skip know. like two and a half minutes from here. So yeah, I yeah, don't yeah. want you to yell at me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, So New Orleans is
1: geographically a a kind of large city. I don't think people realize that it, it, you know, for how walkable it is, it's really not that walkable. It's pretty uh, geographically large. Uh, The Tulane campus is uptown, which is uh, up up the river, I guess. You know, it's kind of a crescent shape. You go uptown, that's where Tulane campus is right next to Loyola University. And, you know, for us, for years playing in the Superdome, like that is not like a Walked from campus to the <laughs> game type deal like that's and, a Tul- tw-
0: and Tulane played in the Superdome like since it opened right
1: yes okay yeah for for years and years and years and and uh you know that's not a uh, have a beer in your dorm and then get you know wander over to the game that that was a twenty minute cab ride that was a you know it, it and it, it's a big kind of it was a thing to get to a Tulane football game and for most people. It wasn't worth it. You know, when I was a student there, it was not a that was not something we did. There were kids who did that, but you know, the Tulane basketball team played on campus. So we went to more basketball games than football games. Not cuz we were any good. We were terrible, but you could <laughs> walk. Um and so I think for putting the stadium on campus was was actually a, a really big uh kind of thing and and also for something that as a supporter of American soccer that the league has figured out, which I'm glad Tulane figured out, which is 12,000 people in an 18,000 person stadium or 16,000 people in an 18,000 person stadium feels electrifying and exciting. Yeah. And 16,000 people in an 80,000 person stadium feels pathetic and miserable. If you are a
0: uh, G5 program, take note of what was just said. <laughs> Hell, if you're a P5 program, some of you yeah, take note I mean, of that.
1: <laughs> and that's the thing, you know, I think Tulane built. The right size stadium, and now they're they're slowly earning back the trust of what should be the the supporting base of that team, which is, uh, you know, uptown New Orleans, and kind of which is not, a, you know, it, it sounds uptown. It sounds like this kind of wealthy part of the world, which it is one of, you know, at, at times a, a wealthier part of New Orleans. But you know, the 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 stadium's eight blocks from Hollygrove, and like it's actually a pretty diverse part of the world where there there is like a uh, a vibrant kind of culture there that can support a football team. And I think once they kind of realize that we need to market to this community um, and, and become a part of this community as opposed to just, and, and really lean into the new Orleans aspect of it, as opposed to just being this kind of rich kid school that plays in the Superdome in front of empty stadiums. I think that's gone a long way to, to restoring the program to uh hopefully something relevant again. Yeah, I,
0: like Tulane is I, – I, Tulane has the same uh, issue there as Miami does, as USC does, um, as Vanderbilt does. Um, they are these schools that just geographically are in – not so much Coral Gables, but geographically are in parts of their cities where you should be able to just reach out and touch people – and get sidewalk alums but two lanes a little bit different because they haven't had success there's no success really mm-hmm. in the last 50 years to tangibly reach out and and point back to um now i mean hey there's you know there's a good amount of crime and there's a good amount of point shaving and there's there's some rough edges in Tulane's recent history that is cool when you dig into it oh um, yeah that's some really fun stories
1: um that was that was going to be the uh sneak season one by the way until we kind of took it in a in a different direction we were going to do the basketball team point shaving scandal The point the shaving yeah
0: oh that's great um uh, but but you can I think Tulane is interesting because and you correct me if I'm wrong here but you can take that point shaving scandal in the 80s and like do a direct link to where Tulane is now in a sense of they had to bottom out because they just stopped caring about sports and Tulane I think has had that like you leave the SEC and they stop caring about sports and then they have the point ship and they stop caring about sports and they prioritize other things and you prioritize other things so much that you create this hole for the future and now Tulane is still trying to dig up so they do the little things like the turnover beads and the turnover chain and um and and having the stadium on campus and stuff like that, but yeah, it is it is a perpetual kind of dig up, particularly when you are in a New Orleans that now has Zion Williamson. When you are in a New Orleans that has the Saints, given Breeze doesn't have a lot of time left, we'll see what happens with the Saints mm-hmm. moving forward. Um, and then you have LSU doing what LSU does and always winning national championships in uh in New Orleans and and you know a hundred years of Louisiana history that has propped up LSU as a certain thing um and well i
1: think and, and i think Tulane kind of wisely sort of understood that there was a lane for them to occupy in the city in college football in which they are you know the recruiting base is there they don't got to get every kid who wants to go to LSU but you know the kids who might not be you know a couple of kids ahead of them at their position all right like come on like let's get let's get some fun people in here let's not try and be the Louisiana State team we're we're never going to do that but like, let's carve out a little part of the world for us, and, and let's find some success. And and I think they're finally kind of kind of getting it in a, in a really good way. Because before it just felt like, uh, like little kids playing dress up. You know, it was, <laughs> it was like sort of pre- it was sort of preposterous. You know, and they had some really talented team. We had Matt Forte come in, averaged three hundred thirty yards a game on the ground or whatever when I was there. And, and you know, I, I think they're, you know, I think they're finally starting to understand their niche understand their role the social media aspect has gotten great they're doing a really good job of connecting with alums now it's a come back to campus and hang with the football team like it's becoming a thing you know homecoming's now a thing that was not a thing when i was there i i couldn't i don't think i went to one homecoming game um i just that wasn't like a part of the culture there
0: yeah and when when ed orgeron talks about you talk about recruiting when or when ed orgeron talks about kind of keeping a fence around the state As much as you can. He's also talking subliminally about Tulane, Um, you know, when the the satellite camps were like a huge thing four or five years ago in college football. And and basically it was recruiting camps um, that like, you know, a Penn State or Michigan or whatever would have at a local school in the South, and LSU was doing one with Tulane, and that was a big deal. I remember when it first started; like that was a big deal for Tulane, and it helps Tulane keep those players in the state, and and helps them um, kind of come up in a very very competitive conference. And I think the fear, and I do think it is a fear for Tulane, is. If Willie Fritz moves on uh soon, if Will Hall moves on soon to somewhere else, what happens to Tulane then? How do you continue and maintain momentum in a league where if you do not stay competitive, you fall behind. And you fall mm-hmm. behind quicker in the American than in most of these other G five leagues. Because, you know, at the top level of the American, UCF's figure that thing out. Um and 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 that's how kind of Tulane in the league will move forward. All right, I'm not letting you get out of here, Nate Scott, without um some baby daughter tips. As the father of daughter of a daughter, um, speak to Stephen Godfrey right now. What is Stephen Godfrey going to going through in the first week of uh of 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 parenthood <laughs> for his third time?
1: Dude, I don't. Godfrey's always the one who loves giving me all this useless advice. That what I've is okay? No wait,
0: intention of Stephen either. Godfrey parenting advice. What is that?
1: Uh, watch your Instagram stories. Good Lord. Yeah. I, I'm glad that, that other people are now the, the banner society, Instagram of him just kind of doling out this like faux sage, uh, dad advice, which is what I've just been getting on the phone for years now. Of him <laughs> just, uh, you know, here's what you don't really, you know, you know, two kids is uh, the step up from what I don't, I have no idea. I, I'm not pretending to be any expert here. Uh, the girls won't pee in your eye when you're changing them. That's nice. that's, that's dope. I understand that happens a lot with boys. <laughs> um so that's cool. I don't know, man. My I, I yeah, I'm a I'm a new dad. My daughter is incredibly sweet. She is uh gentle and from what I've gathered from people who have boys, that is not the case. Um, so that's cool. I'm glad I don't have a little person like punching me in the eye or whatever. So I, I guess yeah, just Hang in there until middle school when she turns on her mom, and then you can you can be the guy, I guess. I don't, I have no idea. As
0: usual, um, when anybody in my immediate kind of sphere that's a few years older than me uh, talks about parenthood, it is always great birth control. Nate Scott, <laughs> USA Today. Um, he is the, I guess, producer, narrator, whatever, of the Sneak Podcast. It is really good. It is about an Idaho football player who, I guess, in the most lame way possible I can explain, like turns to a life of crime. Um, but actually listen to it. It's really good. Um, I've actually listened to it, I promise. It's uh, pretty riveting and it's pretty interesting. Um, Nate, I love you, man. Thank you so much for coming on and, and spending some time with me and, and filling some uh, small shoes.